Well, we're going to be in chapter 4 tonight in the book, and the, the title of the chapter is Playing God. Playing God. And, and R.T. Kendall actually says in this chapter, this was the most difficult chapter he wrote, and he spent more time on this chapter than any other. And so he starts out by looking at two verses at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7. This is what they say, Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judged others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. So that's pretty stout words by Jesus. This is getting closer to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, don't judge, because if you do, you'll be judged. And he says, the standard by which you judge someone is going to be the standard by which you are judged. So when I read that, it's like, okay, do I just sit back and just let things happen and not deal with anything? Or is there something specific that he's speaking of, Jesus here, when he talks about this idea of judging? What does he mean by judging? And so I want us to discuss around the table this question. What does judging of, why does judging other people come naturally to most of us? It's usually pretty easy. As a matter of fact, have you ever noticed that it's super easy to point out sin in other people's lives, but a lot of times we're blinded to the sin in our own lives? Sometimes we'll call it a big sin in someone else's life, but we may struggle with the same thing and we consider it a little thing. It's kind of like a surgery. I'm having surgery. For those of you that have asked, two weeks from yesterday, I'll have surgery on my knee and it's, it's, it's a pretty minor surgery, so I'm very thankful the, the Lord blessed me. It could have been a whole lot worse, but have you ever noticed that if someone else is having the surgery, it's minor, but if you're having the surgery, it's major? It could be the exact same surgery. Sometimes we treat sin that way. And so why does judging other people come naturally to most of us and specifically the way Jesus uses the word judging in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 here, what, is it, what does he mean by that? I want you to take just a few moments around your table, discuss those two things, and then we'll come back together. All right, guys, let's bring it back together. It's very easy for me to look at someone else and look at what's going on in their life and and be able to quickly say, this is what should happen to them. This is how they should be judged. This is how they should be disciplined. I'm very quick to be that way with my children. My wife will say, what do you want to do? And I'll say, this, this, and this. I've already got it all planned out in my mind. I know none of you else are like that except Bruce. He's, he's doing his head up and down. But it's, it's very easy for me to do that. Uh, but Jesus is specifically talking here about not judging other people. And, and what RT does in here is he takes some other scriptures, and he pairs them with this one, and he talks about... Um, what it says in Matthew 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He talks about extending that grace that Jesus extends to each and every one of us. I mean, stop and just for a moment think about if you and I got the exact thing that we deserved, if we just went by Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If the second half of that verse wasn't there, if it just was the wages of sin is death, and you and I had to keep perfect in order to spend an eternity in heaven, that means our payment would be an eternity separated from God forever and ever and ever. Yet he extends grace. What does he say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, or you would be able to brag about it. There's nothing you and I can do to earn 
that favor from God. It's what Jesus did on the cross. And so Jesus comes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In other words, if you'll extend mercy, Jesus says, I'll extend mercy to you. He uses the verse in Philippians 4, 5, Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. Um, that, that, that we would offer grace, we would extend grace just like it is extended to us. He talks about it a little bit later on, and we'll talk about it, but he talks about how God calls us to be godly and how there are certain things that you and I can do like being gracious, like showing mercy, and that is being like God. One of the things we're not supposed to do is judge. Jesus said that we're not supposed to judge one another. And he says in the Bible, he says in the Old Testament, and twice in the New Testament, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. Let me just say this to you. We should listen to every word written. We should, we should memorize as much as we can. But when it says, thus saith the Lord, you better pay close attention. Just like when Jesus says, verily, verily. It means you really better hone in on this. You really better pay attention. So he says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. He says in Ephesians 4.29, let no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. So he says here, no foul language should come from your mouth, only what is good for building up of somebody, so that it gives grace to those who hear. So I want us just for a moment to just think about the words that come out of our mouths. My father would always tell me as a young boy, he says, Derek, if you will take twice as long to think about what you're going to say, you will say half as much, but it'll mean ten times as much. And I, can, I, I bet I've heard my dad say that 500 times in my lifetime. And I didn't understand it a lot as a child, but as I've gotten older, I've understood. And, and you know, how many of you, if you're married, know that the Lord has placed your spouse in your life for many things, but one of the big reasons is for sanctification in our lives. All right, I'm telling you, there are things that I've said to my wife, and, I, and, and, and she'll look at me, or it'll upset her and frustrate her, and I'll think, well, I just said the truth, but the timing was wrong, or my tone was wrong, or it just didn't need to be said. Have you ever said something that everybody in the room already knew, and as soon as you said it, you thought, why in the world did I just say that? All right, I, I, I'm guilty of that. I'm very guilty of that. And so um, there's a couple things, three things that I see coming out of this verse that I think are so pertinent to us as believers. And then RT takes and kind of looks at four things. So I want to give you the three things that, that I heard my student pastor's wife tell me in the ninth grade. I could take you to the place I was sitting when she shared this with our little youth group at the church my dad pastored. These are the three things that she said. She says, questions to ask before you speak. These are three questions that I have used. And by, now, 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 mind you, I don't use them all the time because sometimes I just run my mouth. But when I really stop and think, these are the three questions that you need to ask before you say anything. First question, is it true? Is what I'm about to say true? If it's not, there's no need to say it. It's not true, it's a lie. So why would we say it? That seems pretty elementary, but yet some of us need to hear it. The second thing that we see in that verse is, is it necessary? Just because something's true does not mean it is necessary in every situation. I want you to stop and think about that just for a minute. Just because something's true doesn't necessarily mean it's necessary. I'll give you an example of it. Do you remember when Jesus came upon the woman that had been caught, caught in adultery, and the men were getting ready to stone her. 
Jesus knelt down and he, he drew something in the, the dirt. Many scholars and theologians have debated on what he would have written. Some say he was writing their sins down. Some say he was writing scripture. I think the bottom line is it doesn't necessarily at this point matter what was written down in the dirt. What matters is the words that he said, let whichever one of you is without sin cast the first stone. You see, it was true that she had been caught in adultery, but it wasn't necessarily necessary to bring her in front of everybody and make a spectacle of it. And so is it true? Number two, is it necessary? And number three, is it encouraging? Sometimes there are something that needs to be said, and it is true, and it is necessary, but in order for it to be encouraging, it needs to be the right time and in the right posture it needs to be given. For example... If something happens or somebody does something in private and it needs to be rebuked or it needs to be brought to the light, but it happened in private, it's true and it's necessary that it be addressed, but not in public. So something happens between two brothers, you don't need to bring that person in front of six or eight people, you need to go to that brother and you need to deal with it one-on-one. That's biblical. That's in Matthew. Now it says, if that brother will have nothing to do with you, you're to go and get another brother to go with you, and the two of you are, and there's a process to that. Eventually, they're to, become, they're to come in front of the church. So there's a whole process to that whole thing. But the reality is, we need to ask ourselves these questions. Number one, is it true? Number two, is it necessary? Number three, is it, is it encouraging? I've used those for years in my own personal life. But what happens in this chapter is, R.T. Kendall says there's four things. There's four things, and, and some of these are overlapping on the other ones. He says, number one, is it necessary? Is it necessary to say what I'm about to say? Okay, He says, number two, is it encouraging? You see the overlap of what that, that uh, sister in Christ shared with me. He says right here is, will this encourage them? W- will it make them feel better? The third thing he says, is it edifying? Is it edifying to them? You say, well, I thought that was the same thing as encouraging. He says right here, will it edify? Will what you say build them up and make them stronger? You see, I'm convinced that one of the biggest callings of Christians, among other Christians, is to be an encourager. Now, not by a show of hands, but how many of you have very little encouragement in your life? Nobody likes to be discouraged, and all of you can think of that person that discourages you. It's not someone you enjoy being around. It's not somebody you you don't enjoy being around, somebody that kind of sucks the air out of the room. As a matter of fact, it's a person you kind of dodge and you don't want to spend time with. We want to be around people that encourage us. What does Brother Steve say about encouragement? It's to take courage and place it inside someone else. This idea of edifying is to build them up and make them stronger. There are times in which someone does something where you can take them aside and you can say, hey, I've struggled with this in my life and I want to help you be better. But let me just say this. Just because you see something that needs to be helped in another brother's life doesn't mean you have the right to go and speak that to that brother. Because if you've got no relationship, a lot of times it can do more damage than anything else. If I don't know anybody at all, I've never seen in my life, and I see them do something questionable, it's not going to be good for me to walk up and say, what in the world are you doing? You are wrong in this area. I, I, I haven't built up that equity of the relationship to be able to speak that into that person's life. And so he says, will it edify? And the fourth thing he says is, will it dignify? He says, will it dignify that person? Jesus treated other people with a sense of dignity. 
His whole job wasn't to put them down. His whole job was to show them how much he loved them and offer his free gift of salvation to offer them grace. And so I've been thinking back over the last four weeks. I sat down at my desk. Yes, no, that's not true. Monday morning, got my days mixed up. Monday morning, I sat down at my desk and I was just thinking through some conversations that I've been in in the last four weeks. The last four weeks. And I've been asking myself these four questions. Were these on the forefront of my mind? Did I, was I involved in a conversation that wasn't needed? It wasn't necessary. It wasn't encouraging. It wasn't edifying. It wasn't dignifying. And I'll be honest with you, I, 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 I feel like I have. I've been in a couple conversations and I've partaken in a couple things that, that they just weren't needed. And so I want you to discuss around the table just for a moment uh, this very question. But let's just look at the last week. What conversation have you had just this last week that you shouldn't have? And I'm going to give you an example. I was talking to a guy yesterday on the phone, he's a friend of mine, and uh, he said to me, he said, I was at work yesterday and there were some guys talking about some stuff they shouldn't have been talking about. He said, they're not in my department, I don't know them very well, and he said, I went over there and I just, to be honest with you, I just kind of blasted them. He said, uh, my, it, was, it was really from a self-righteous standpoint, I was really wanting to say, guys, what is y'all's problem? He said, I didn't know any of them. And he said, man, it backfired on me. He said, there were five of them, and they ganged up on me. And he said, I walked around defeated. And he said, I just realized I probably did that completely wrong. I probably should have walked away. I probably should have prayed for some wisdom. He said, I wasn't walking in the spirit when I addressed them. I was walking in the flesh. And so that's just one small example. But, you know, I was talking to another friend about a week ago, and he was telling me that he's struggling at work a little bit because he's surrounded by guys that aren't believers, and he said a lot of the conversation is what we would call dirty jokes or jokes and, and stories that, 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 that they don't point us to Jesus. As a matter of fact, they make us think about things that we shouldn't think about. And he said, I've really struggled with that. He said, but I found myself not really partaking in them, but just kind of hanging out around there and laughing at those things. And he said, I just don't know what to do. And so we talked about some options for him. You know, could he get up and could he walk away? Could he work in another room? Could he find some guys at that company that are believers that could encourage him you know what are some things that he could do to be able to kind of shield himself from those instead of partaking in those so I want you to take a few minutes and talk about what is the conversation you may should have had this week and I'm going to go first I'm going to give you mine I had a conversation with my son this past week who just to be quite frank with you has not been doing the best in school now we homeschool our children uh, let me rephrase that my wife homeschools our children okay I grade some tests here and there and uh, sometimes on Friday I help out. I, I, sent her, I sent her away with one of the girls in our life group. I said, baby, I said, uh, I surprised her. I had called this the, uh, friend of mine. I said, hey, would your wife want to go out of town with my wife for the weekend? Just a Friday, Saturday. They're going to leave early Friday. They're going to go back late Saturday night. I'll pay for the whole thing. This is about a year and a half ago. And he said, sure. He's, I said, I'm going to send them up to Nashville. I just got this little hotel. I'm going to give them a little bit of money to eat on. They can just shop. They can lay around. They can do whatever they want. She just needs a little bit of time away. So I surprised my wife two days in advance. I said, baby, I'm sending you to Nashville. You're going to go with your friend, and, and this is what y'all are going to do. And I don't want to hear from you. I, I, I do not want to hear it. You just turn your phone off. And she said, well, I'm going to keep my phone on in case you need me. I said, I don't need you. I, I got this. It's just four kids. I mean, how, how difficult can it be? And so, uh, you know, I decided I'm going to teach school on Friday, and we're going to camp out in the backyard on Friday night. So I, I, I put the whole thing together. About 2 o'clock on Friday, I texted her. I said, I can promise you this. 
somebody will not be alive when you get home. It may be one of the kids, and it may be, may be me, but one of us will not be alive when you get home. So we camped out, and I realized how grateful I am for my wife. We camped out. My, my youngest son caught our deck on fire. I was down setting something up in the tent. He said, uh, I had a fire put up on the deck. He said, uh, it's on fire. I said, yeah, it's on fire. I started the fire. And he said, okay. About five minutes, I walked back up there, and I got three or four boards burned out. I said, the deck's on fire. He said, I told you it was on fire. And Okay, all right. Be a little more specific next time. I'd appreciate it. Uh, but, but, but anyways, I was having this conversation with my son. He's not been doing well in school. And in the middle of the conversation, I, if I can be as transparent as I can, I got in the flesh. I raised my voice to my son, and I, I just, I just kind of let him have it. I'll be honest with you. I was tired. I'm not making excuses. I was tired. I didn't handle it correctly. I snapped at him. It broke his little spirit. He's 13 years old. We have a great relationship. I love him. He loves me. But I'm telling you, that night, I couldn't hardly sleep. Thinking about the words that left my mouth did not make him stronger to want to get after his school and be better. They tore him down, and I guarantee he didn't sleep much that night either. And I had to go the next morning and make it right. That happened just this past Thursday. So I want you to take a few moments around your table. I want you to be honest, be transparent, and discuss this question for a few minutes. We'll come back together. All right, guys, let's come back together. I don't know if you know this, but there are different learning styles that people have. Uh, I don't know if you've ever studied learning styles. There's different teaching styles, but there's also different learning styles. Some people are visual learners. They like to see things. Some people like to put their hands on and, and, and learn how it works. Some people like to take notes. There's all different types. Uh, there's, there's, uh, depending on what research you read, there's anywhere from 7 to 10, 12 different types of, of, uh, of learning styles. My personal learning style is visual. I like to see things. And so when I think through these four things that he says, here's what you need to do. You need to think about it being necessary, encourage, edify, and dignify. I like to see it in a picture to help me process through. How, how does that practically work? You know, a, a good teacher can teach you how to work a math problem, a good math teacher. They can teach you how to work a math problem. I wasn't good at any, and I mean any subject in school. No subject except math. That was it. The only thing, I wasn't good at anything else. As a matter of fact, I took the ACT. I wanted to play basketball in college. They said, you got to have a 20, you got to have a 21. Now, I, you know, everybody I knew had made bigger, higher than a 21. I thought, well, this would be cake. Well, I went and took it. I made an 18, Okay. So I took it again, I made an 18. I took it a third time, I made an 18. I took it a fourth time, I made an 18. I thought, boy, I'm just never going to get past an 18. And that's just who I am, I'm 18. I finally took it and I got a 21. I just, just the grace of God. But what happened was, I got a letter from the, uh, the ACT people, whoever, I don't know, where, where do they live, I don't know. But they sent me this letter, and it, and it said to call them, they had some questions they'd like to ask me. And I thought, okay. And so the guy, I get on the phone with this guy, I'm a junior in high school, and he says, you know, I just got some questions I'd like to ask you. I've got your test here, and it's very fascinating that you scored a perfect in mathematics. You didn't miss a question, which would be a 36, but you got an 18. And I thought, well, that's how dumb I am in every other subject. I mean, I was so far in the other direction that it brought that whole thing down to an 18, okay? So that, that just kind of tells you where I'm at. So anyways, I took all these different maths in high school that you don't need to take. You don't have to have to graduate, but I thought, since the only thing I'm good at, I'm going to take them. So when I get to college, I've had calculus, I've had geometry, I've had trigonometry, I've had algebra. I, I, I just enjoyed it. 
And so I get to college, and I've got this calculus two teacher, and he says, just in passing in the second lesson, well, we all know we use algebra on a daily basis, and he gives one, two, three steps of how we use algebra. And I was like, wow, I never knew that. I just thought it was just, you know, on paper. I didn't realize we actually put this stuff to use. So I went up and talked to the professor after the class. I said, that's fascinating. He said, oh, yeah, housewives use algebra all the time when they're cooking. And, and, and construction guys use algebra all the time. They may not know how it all works, but they use it all the time. Bruce is nodding his head. He's in construction. They use it all the time. And so he said, we use it on a daily basis. And that's when I realized a good teacher can teach you how to work a math problem. A great teacher can teach you how it applies to your life. And sometimes I think what we do, even with the Bible, is we say, the Bible says this, 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 and this, and we all walk away going, that was good, that was good, that was good. How does it apply to us? How how do we actually utilize it? And so I'm going to just give you this. This isn't in the book. I just put this diagram together because I'm a visual person. So here's how I see it. I have this thought come into my mind. I want to say to this guy this. I'm going to use Daniel right there. He's looking at me. I want to say this to Daniel. I'm going to put it through this grid. I see this as almost like a funnel, okay? I put what I want to say in this first box, and I ask the question, is it necessary? If it's necessary, I can push it to the next box. Does this make sense? If it's not, I've got to, I, it's, it's done. I can't even say it. But if it's necessary, I can move it to the be- next box. I can say, is this encouraging? Is this thought going to, is this what I want to say? Is it encouraging? It is encouraging. Okay, well, let's move it to the next. If it's not, i got to throw it out. I've seen churches, as a matter of fact, I got to talk to David Platt one time. As a, he's a pastor. He was a pastor in Birmingham at the time, but pastors in another church. And now, and uh, he, he has a grid for his church. He, he took their mission statement and put it in three boxes. So for us, it would be love God, love people, share Jesus, make disciples. And what he did is he, he took every single ministry in the church and he took it through that grid. And he said, okay, first, first ministry, does, the, is it focused on loving God? And if it's not, ministry's out. So I asked him afterwards, I said, okay, you, you said you did this. I said, how many ministries you get rid of? He said, about 20. I said, you're kidding. I said, I work in the recreation ministry at Bellevue. I said, uh, what do you think? He said, we got rid of recreation ministry at our church. I said, you're kidding. I said, why not? He said, well, we, we, we loved God, and we, and we were loving people, and we're sharing Jesus. He said, we just could not figure out how to make disciples, and since that was really the, the thrust of what we believe God had called us to do, we said, you know what, we're just not going to do that right now. Now, we may come back and do it another time, but we've got to really focus in on where God's, saying, where God's sending us. And so he used it as a funnel. So I'm using this as a funnel. And if it makes it all the way through, then I can have the conversation with Daniel. If it doesn't make it through that funnel, I cannot say it. I cannot say it. You remember the saying that your parents told you when you were little? If you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. That's the way I'm utilizing this. If it makes it through, I say it. If it doesn't, I don't. He says in his book on page 110, the degree to which we resist the temptation to judge will be the degree to which we ourselves are largely spared of being judged. In other words... The more grace you show, the more grace will be shown to you. The more mercy you extend, the more mercy will be extended to you. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious. When? Always. All times. Your speech should be gracious. It should be seasoned with salt so that you, know, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Some translations say every person. In other words, through the teaching of God's word, and us pouring this into our lives, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, if we will seek those things, he will show us how we're to respond. Always to all people. Always to all people. 1 Peter 3, 9. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing 
since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Think about this. We've talked about this already a few weeks ago. But Jesus was on the cross. The men that had beaten him, had ripped the beard and hair out of his face and head, had beaten him to a, a point where he was, he was ready to die, who had made him drag the cross as far as he could up Golgotha, who were, had nailed him to the cross, who had laughed and spat on him, spit on him, who had beaten him and slapped him and punched him, and now we're at the feet of the cross, and they were gambling over his clothes, and they were laughing at him. Jesus could have passed judgment right then. But yet Jesus offers them a blessing. He offers them the blessing of eternal life. And so he says to us, that blessing that's been given to you, when you're shown evil, you're to give a blessing in response. I'll just be honest with you. When somebody hurts my feelings or somebody makes me mad, the first response is not to give them a blessing. First response is give them a knuckle sandwich. Or at least to let them know how I feel. So, I'm going to stop right here and just, I'm going to tell you what happened Saturday, okay? I've been transparent a little bit, but I'm about to get real transparent. So, I, I was, uh, on, on Saturday, uh, we had the men's conference. I don't know if you got to come to that, but I had a great time at the men's conference. And as soon as the men's conference got over, I got everything that I could taken care of. I told Noah, I said, I think I've got everything done. I've got to get out here. I've got to go coach my son in basketball. Now, this is... This is top-notch, high-level basketball. This is nine-year-olds, okay? So we're talking about this is big time, all right? This is nine-year-old basketball. And I'm coaching over at Ridgeway Baptist. Now, this is, a, this is an independent team, and they're hosting this tournament. Now, I'm the assistant coach. The head coach is Daniel Jerkins. A lot of y'all know him. He's the associate pastor out at uh, First Baptist Hickory with. He's a very dear friend of mine. Our boys are great friends. And so we kind of went back and forth on who was going to be the head coach. And I said, Daniel, you do it. I'm going to miss a couple games. You're going to be here, so you take the head coach. I'll be your assistant. So I'm, I'm like the water boy. I'm the towel boy. He's got a dry erase board, and I hold that stuff. And when he needs it, I hand it to him. And I kind of handle substitution. But I let him deal with the referees. Okay, I, I don't touch that stuff. Right? Just, he's the head coach. I'm doing it until Saturday. Okay, and so I'm I'm exhausted. I'll be honest with you. I was up here all day Friday, up here late with the men's conference, back up here early. I'm exhausted, and you know what happens when you get tired? You you just, you just you know, a lot of times we just walk in the flesh. And so what happens is, 20 seconds into the game, the ball goes out of bounds underneath the goal, and it's their ball. It's fine, nothing wrong. And my son's guarding the inbounds, and my son reaches over the line. Okay, this referee comes unglued on my son. He yells at my son. He says. Uh, that's a delay of game warning on white team. Next time, that's a technical foul. And he's like yelling at my son. I'm like, he's nine. But I didn't say anything. All right? I thought, that's the rule. I'm going to let it go. About four minutes left in the first half, we're up by about five points, which in nine-year-olds is basically like being up 40. Okay? I mean, pro- the other team's probably not coming back five points. Okay? But it's getting sloppy. All right? And so I told Daniel, I said, Daniel, we ain't used the timeout yet. Why don't you call a timeout? Let's kind of calm the guys down. So he calls the timeout. Well, this referee that we had already had this issue with the Benny game, he starts walking to the scores table like he's supposed to do. All the mechanics were right. And he said, I got a full timeout, white coach. That's both timeouts for both coaches. Both teams have zero timeouts remaining for the first half. Well, that wasn't true. We, we, we have two timeouts per half. We only call one timeout. So Daniel says, uh, Mr. Referee, Mr. Referee, that, that was our first timeout. He was very respectful. And uh, the referee, Mason, I'm, you would have loved this, okay? The referee goes, I said zero timeouts left. 
And Daniel said, Mr. Referee, that's not right. He turned around to Daniel and he said, it is right. I made the call. So I'm on the bench. I'm still on two crutches. So I hop up, crutching myself over to the, you know, crutching myself all the way over to the scores table. And I said, Mr. Referee. Now this is where it all went down, okay? I said, Mr. Referee, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what the book says. Now that's true in basketball, okay? Because if a referee comes out and says he's got 27 fouls, it, if the book says three, it's three fouls. It doesn't matter. But my mistake was coming against his his pride and his call and his authority, okay? I mean, I was completely in the wrong. So he turns to me and he says, are you the head coach? I said, no, sir. I said, I'm an assistant coach. And he said, you have zero voice in this gym. You're not allowed to talk to me. Sit your butt. This is exactly what he said. Sit your butt back down on that, that bench right there. And I said, well, I don't have to sit down because it's a timeout. Now, do you see what I'm doing here? You see what I'm doing here? I'm following the rules to a T, but I have just come all over this guy, and, and publicly, right out here in the open, okay? All these little nine-years are going, what in the world's going on here, you know? Parents are over there. These parents ain't got a clue. You know, they're thinking, wow, coaches, stand up to the referee, okay? I'm over here. I look like a, a, like a very foolish, okay? And so he says to me again, he says, sit your rear end down. He says, sit your rear end down. I'm going to say that. And I said, uh, I said, okay, and I turned, I said, would you please not... Re- would you please not talk to me that way? And so he, he teased me up. Well, I've had two technical fouls in my entire life. One in men's league for telling a referee that he was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And that was, a, that was a whole other story completely in the flesh. And I was 22 years old, okay? That's the only other time. This is my only other technical. And so I, I turned to Daniel. I said, Daniel, don't say please. You'll get a technical foul, okay? And so I sat down, all right? Well, as I'm trying to crutch myself back over there, this referee comes around and gets right in my face right in my face. I mean, his nose is almost touching mine. He starts yelling at me, you want me to throw you out of the gym? I said, no, sir. I'm trying to sit down on the bench. The other referee comes between us. He pushes that guy away. He said, can you please just sit down and I'll take care of this. You could tell that guy was going through something. He was dealing with something. But you could tell I had not responded the right way. I'm sitting there and I can guarantee you can see smoke coming out of my ears. I was, Kevin, you've seen me. I was hot as a firecracker, man. I mean, I could not believe. I looked at my wife, and she was just going. I mean, I, I'm frustrated, and I, and I can't stand up. I can't yell. I can't talk anymore the rest of this game. And, boy, I wasn't sitting there three minutes. The Holy Spirit said, what are you doing? It doesn't matter if he's 100% wrong. It doesn't matter if the call was wrong. It doesn't matter what he said to you. It doesn't matter how he acted. He is the authority on this court, whether you like it or not. Whether you agree with it or not, or whether you respect it or not. He said, I want you to apologize to him after the game. And Jason, as quick as the Holy Spirit said that, I said, fat chance. That's exactly what I said to the Holy Spirit. I ain't happening. I just came from the men's conference. I'm supposed to stand up and be a man. And I mean, the rest of those 18 minutes, I just wrestled with the Lord. Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And at the end of the game, I walked over to the guy and I said, sir, can I... Can I apologize to you? He said, no, you can't. And I said, well, sir, I'd like to apologize to you for how I, how I reacted to your authority. And we sat down right there on the sidelines, and we talked for almost 20 minutes. He shared a whole lot of stuff going on in his life and some frustrations that he has and stuff. And at the end of it, he put his arm around me, and he said, you know what? I've refereed for 30 years. I've never had anybody apologize. Now, I do not tell you the story to brag because you could tell I was as foolish as anybody could have been. But I know this, somebody that had made a fool of me as well, had yelled at me, 
had said all this, the Holy Spirit said, you need to give this man a blessing. I believe that's what God calls us to do, men. Somebody's going to cut you off on Germantown Parkway going home. Why are you going to get upset at them? You don't know them. They don't know you. Matter of fact, I had a wreck right out in front, in front of Wendy's one day. It was late at night. I came through the red light. I T-boned a guy. I, I, was, I came through the green light. He ran the red light on the far end, right there at Rock Creek in Germantown. I T-boned. It was two men, two elderly men's guy, and I, I went right to the driver's side door, and I was, I was frustrated. I was upset. I jumped out of my car, my truck, to go check on these guys, and when I got there, both men were crying. I couldn't get the driver's door open. My truck was smashed into it, and I thought, wow, I've really hurt them. They're crying, and I went around. I opened up the passenger door, and the one gentleman says to me, he said, I'm so sorry. This is all our fault. We will pay for everything. We just came from the nursing home right here, and our mother has gone to be with the Lord. We do not know. We do not know what people are going through. I do not know what that referee was dealing with. All I know is who I am and what God's doing in my life and how I should respond. Jesus calls us, when somebody insults you, you give them a blessing. You give them a blessing. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. How many careless words? Every one of them. We are going to be held accountable. I, I believe that when I die and stand before the Lord, I'm going to be held accountable for how I led my wife. I'm going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable to how I raised my children. Not Corey O'Hare, the middle school pastor. Not Steve Spence, the high school pastor. Not Steve Gaines, our senior pastor. I am. I'm the leader of my home. I'm going to not the school system. I am. I'm going to be held responsible for how I raised my children. I'm going to be held responsible to how I responded to people, how I spoke to people. And it says right here, he says, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Guys, I just want to say to you that whether we're dealing with forgiveness, unforgiveness, or something else, that our words should point people to Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we are to be the aroma of Christ. When people get done with you and I, they should smell Jesus. They should think more highly of Jesus than they do us. R.T. Kendall says the true, he says the, I'm sorry, I don't know why that's not popping up. He says the t true test of spirituality is being able to not point the finger. That cut me deep. The truest test of spirituality is being able to not point the finger. And so he says in his book, he says, remember before speaking uncalled for criticism. All right? Now, we like to criticize things. We criticize the football coaches. You know, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was coaching. How many, how many of us know that we are a lot better coaches than the guys they put out there? Well, we talk like it, you know. I mean, I've heard Dallas Cowboy fans say, I could have called, I could have, you know, coached a much better game than that guy. Well, I don't know about that. You, you, I can't even coach nine-year-olds, okay? I got no place to be criticizing somebody else. But this is what he says, before you speak uncalled for criticism, he says, remember, God is listening. God listens to everything we say. He hears everything you say. I think about the Adam and Eve when they were in the garden, and, and the Lord came down. He said, Adam, Adam, where are you? The Lord knew where he was. The Lord knew about the sin in his life. The Lord know what, knew what he had said to the devil. The Lord already knew the sin that they had committed, but he wanted to hear Adam speak those words. So remember, God is listening. 
Number two, R.T. Kendall says he knows the truth about us. So it's really easy to point out sin in other people's lives. But Jesus knows the sin that's in our life. As a matter of fact, he says, don't worry about the splinter in somebody else's eye. Why don't you deal with the plank in your own eye? I saw a skit one time at a marriage conference my wife and I went to. And it was in this like living room. They were up on stage and they had set up like this living room. And it was a, a husband and wife sitting there and they were talking. And the, the husband is holding a log about four feet long on his eyeball like this. He's just holding it. And he's just talking, and she's just kind of rubbing her eye like this, and he's just wearing, I mean, he's just chewing her out. He's just going on and on and on, and it was a picture of oftentimes, we got all this stuff, we got all this sin, we got all these problems, we got all this hidden stuff, we got all this unconfessed stuff in our own lives, and we're wanting to point out these little bitty things in other people's lives. Can I just make a statement? If you're going to go point something out in someone else's life, number one, you better make sure you got everything taken care of in your own life. As a matter of fact, every Sunday, you know the brother Steve, has us praying over people and anointing them with oil. And we go to James chapter 5 with that. It says if, you're, if someone's sick, bring them before the elders of the church so that they may be prayed over, right, and anointed with oil. But what's interesting in that chapter, it says confess your sins one to another. Before I ever pray or anoint anybody else, I better deal with what's going on in my own personal life. I better come before with clean hands. Now, I'm not perfect. I sinned on Saturday, and I had to confess that. I had to deal with that. But it's not just that that person that's being prayed over needs to be prayed, asked for forgiveness. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to deal with that because he knows the truth about us. And then the last thing he says, remember, he says the Lord is ruthlessly fair. <laughs> he is ruthlessly fair. R.T. Kendall uses the story. Do you remember David and Nathan? Do you remember the prophet Nathan coming to David? Now, this is after Bathsheba. David has slept with Bathsheba. She has gotten pregnant. David has had her husband killed. David has lied. He has cheated. He has stolen somebody from their, their spouse. I mean, he, he, he's committed them all, okay? I mean, David is really in a bad spot. Nathan comes before him, and he tells him this parable. He says uh, there was a, a rich man who had tons of land and tons of money and tons of sheep and all this stuff. There was a poor man that only had one little sheep. And it was time for sacrifices. And the rich man went and took that poor man's lamb. And he sacrificed that poor man's lamb, the only lamb that he had raised with his children. And he was preparing for the day of sacrifice. And now the rich man with all of this has stolen this one little lamb from the poor person. And he says to him, he says, what should we do? Well, it's very interesting. David comes unglued. David absolutely comes unglued. And he, 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 uh, he says, well, I tell you what, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to read it to you how, how uh, R.T. Kendall put it in here. He said, David burned with anger towards the rich man, and he pronounced sentence on this gross injustice. As surely as the Lord lives, that strong language, the taking of an oath, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, you hear that? He's saying the rich man deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he has done such a thing and had no pity. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He said, and then Nathan said to David, Whoo, you're the man. You are the man. Now, I want to just caution you for a moment. This was a prophet of God that had been told by God to go and confront Nathan. 
over the sin in his life. Now maybe, just maybe, God will call you to confront somebody in their own life. Maybe God will call you to. But you better make for sure that that's the Holy Spirit and not your flesh. And you better make sure that you're pure before the Lord and that you're coming with the right intention not to tear that brother down, not to beat him up over it, but to edify him and encourage him and to hold him to the standard God has called us to be held to. There are times that we need to confront one another. But brothers, there's a way, a right way and a wrong way to do it. And if there is any hint of pride or arrogance in our life, we need to run from it. We need to flee from it. We better make sure that it's the Lord because he is ruthlessly fair. As a matter of fact, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, the sword, this is what Nathan said to David. The sword will never depart from your house. That's what he said to David. You want to know what the consequence is for your sin, big boy? The sword will never depart. Death will never depart from your house as long as your, your line is intact. So the Lord is ruthlessly fair. Malachi 3.16 says, At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. He is listening. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. What does it say? It says the Lord was listening. The Lord was listening. R.T. Kendall says, Judging people is elbowing in on God's exclusive territory. But God said, vengeance is mine. It's not your responsibility. It's the Lord's responsibility. So I want us to put this question up on the screen. It's twofold. You've got lots of time to discuss this, and we're going to close in prayer in just a little bit. But it's a twofold question. Number one, how can you step away from judging other people and leave that to the Lord? How can you leave that to the Lord? What does that look like in your life? What's the application here? How do I practically do this in my life? And the, second, the follow-up part of that is, what does that practically look like in your life? Okay, what does it practically look like in your life? Take some time, discuss it around your table. We'll come back in just a few minutes and pray over one another. <clears throat> hey, guys. I want to do this as we get ready to close. And by the way, you've got plenty of time. It's 7.32, so you've got all the time you need. I just want us to pray at the tables. And I want us to pray along the lines of what we talked about tonight. And then I want to give us one other thing to pray for Pray that the Lord will help us to guard our mouths and to keep us from having judgmental attitudes towards other people. So I want you to pray over one another at the table. But I want us to pray for one other thing. I don't know if you are keeping up with uh, the earthquake and everything that's happened in Turkey and Syria. I, 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 I can't hardly read anything else about it. Uh, it, it it's just it's horrific what's happened. Uh, the Depending on what site you read, news station you, you look at, the, some have say it's passed over 40,000, the number have died, uh, as much as 41,000 people have died in an area that is 99% lost, 99% lost, over 40,000 people have died, they're pulling, I just read, I just pulled it up right there to make sure my number was right, it, it said about 20 minutes ago that they pulled a baby and two little girls from the rubble that have been down there all this time. And uh, they're getting them to the hospital. But they say their hospitals are packed full of babies and children. They have no idea who they belong to. And most likely their parents are gone. They're in the middle, uh, parts of it, they're in the middle of a blizzard. Food is scarce. There's no clean drinking water. We've got missionaries. We've got missionary family from Bellevue that are over in that area. And I just want to ask you to pray. When I saw 
on Saturday, them pull a little baby. It was on the news. They pulled a little baby out of that robot. I just wept. I just wept. Because I thought how blessed we are here and everything they're going through. So I know that's heavy, but my goodness, if we can't pray, what can we do? I heard Miss Donna one time say, the work of a Christian is prayer. It's what God calls us to do. And so pray over one another, but spend some time praying over Turkey and Syria. Pray over our missionaries. Pray over their children. Pray over these children and these families that have been devastated and that they will never recover fully from what they've seen. So take some time to pray over that. When you're done at your table, you're dismissed.